This is Geraldine Hasselpool, FMH blogger and all-around Mormon feminist superstar. If you have enjoyed the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast as much or more than you have enjoyed a Mormon casserole or a salad recipe from the children's friend, please consider a tax-deductible donation to the podcast. Your donation supports the amplification of women's voices, past, present, and future. Please give and give generously, and then deduct it from your taxes like a true American, and then eat some funeral potatoes. Hey, you've earned it. One, two, three, go. Feminist Mormon. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we seek to try to understand the practice of Mormon plural marriage. And if you've been paying attention, we've been talking about the... FLDS Church, the Fundamentalist Latter-day Saints. And I'm really excited. I've talked about this before, but I have someone who is a feminist hero of mine that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a long time, Nadine Hansen. Nadine, can you say hello? Hi. Hi, Lindsay. It's good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. And I need to confess my my podcasting sins to all the listeners. We actually had Lisa do an interview with Nadine over a year ago, and it's the only audio that I've ever lost. I have no idea what happened with it, if my kids like deleted it off the computer or whatever. And I was devastated because Nadine is like, like I said, you're, you've been a hero of mine. She has been doing this Mormon feminist work for a long time, and she's legit. And she's not only doing it, you know, online and um, in our community, but she's doing it outside of our community. So Nadine, Thanks for coming on and uh, giving us another chance. I'm happy to be here, Lindsay. So, Nadine, tell us about who you are and what you do. Well, I'm an attorney, and um, in 1998, we moved from California to southern Utah when we retired. And after we'd been here for a little while, I decided to take the Utah bar exam so that I could do law here if I wanted to. And um, so shortly after I was admitted to the bar, I actually, that's when I actually had my first encounter with polygamists here in, in southern Utah. And I don't really know how the people got my name or contacted me. I can't remember now. But there was a group that had a website back then called Help the Child Brides. And uh, somehow they contacted me, and there was a woman who had been kicked out of the FLDS, and she had left without her children, and, and they were trying to help her get them back. They had a court hearing set up, and so... They asked me if I would help her. So I, I actually did one court appearance, and then after that, somebody else took over the case. Her situation was that she, when she had left, uh, she'd left her children in, and it had been quite a few years, uh, I think seven or eight years. And so she was trying to get her children back, but 
at this point, you know, the court is going to look at this and say, well, these children have been raised in this, really by another mother for all these years, and and the youngest ones really didn't even remember her. Um, In the end, she was able to just, she negotiated some, um, some parent time with them with the help of this other attorney. I, what I really didn't get at that time, though, was the dynamics of when someone leaves or is kicked out, how the, the FLDS close ranks against that person, and they don't want them in contact with anybody anymore, especially not their children. We've been talking about this a little bit on the last two episodes doing the history of the FLDS. And if you haven't listened to that, I would recommend you go back and listen to that. But excommunication is somewhat common in religions around the world. They have some sort of mechanism to deal with dissent or something like that. Uh, but the FLDS is a little bit different, right? Yes. I, I think you could maybe liken it to, there are other groups that, that shun very harshly and deeply, the Amish, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Scientologists, and um, the, the FLDS have their own version of that. It was really kind of um, encapsulated in a sermon that Warren Jeffs gave back in um, about the year 2000. And he, it was called Our Prophet's Call, Leave Apostates Alone Severely. And in that sermon, he discusses apostasy. And, and he says a lot of things about, um, apostates. For instance, I just pulled it up while, while we were talking. And, um, I'll quote a few of the things. An apostate from this is the most dark person on earth. They are a liar from the beginning. They have made covenants to abide the laws of God and have turned traitor to the priesthood and their own existence, and they are led about by their master, Lucifer. They can't help themselves but fight against the prophet and all who support him. You cannot go to apostates to to receive any evidence of this work. Their nature is to be a liar. Um, It goes on to say he wants us to stop patronizing businesses of apostates or doing business with them. And then he says, The great challenge among this people is the apostates are our relatives. If a mother has apostate children, her emotions won't let her give them up, and she invites them into the home, desecrating that dedicated home. We want to see them and socialize with them. And every time we do, we weaken our faith and our ability to stand with the prophet. This is what our prophet says about relatives. And then he tells about the time when, when Jesus, um, when the, his, Jesus' family came to his house and, and, uh, he says, uh, who are, who are you are, who's my mother? Who is my, who are my brethren? You probably remember that story. Mm-hmm. And, and so he, he talks about that. And then he says, Your only real family are the members of the priesthood who are faithful to our prophet. Now, I should, I should explain the terminology here of the priesthood. You talked about this a little bit in your, in your other podcast about how they weren't called the FLDS until 
at some point in the 1980s. Before that, they they just referred to it as the work or the priesthood work or the priesthood. And they still talk about it that way now. They, they'll, they're grateful to be involved in the work or the priesthood work. And when they kick a man out, um, they, they call it, they'll say that they corrected him. So for some reason he has, well, <laughs> these days typically run afoul of the fact that he knows too much. <laughs> and uh, so he gets kicked out. When, when he does that, he loses priesthood. And that's like the worst thing that can happen to a man, because if he loses priesthood, he can't take his family to the celestial kingdom. And the family can't get into the celestial kingdom unless they're attached to a priesthood holder. And so typically what they've done in the past is that they reassign the the wife and the children to another man and reseal them. Um, that's actually not happening since the end of 2011 because at that point Warren was in prison and he he dissolved all marriages and, and so and and that includes even legal marriages not just sealings so at that point if any husbands and wives were together as marital partners they were committing adultery and they were not to um, be as husband and wife anymore until he gets released from prison and can come back and reseal the marriages. So, now so what is the, the mechanism the, of that? So, in in our first two episodes, we we've sort of led to Warren being in prison, but we haven't talked a lot about about him in prison and what's happened since. And so, I was kind of hoping you could walk us through that story. What happens after he's in prison and he's got his sentence? What's been going on? Yeah, maybe I should even tell you what led up to that. Yes, that would because be fantastic. He's in prison because of what happened in Texas, but he was actually arrested for something that happened in Utah. In 2006, he was uh, charged with the crime of being an accomplice to rape, and that was the case the case of Elisa Wall. And um, at the time, I think in, in the, the court case, she was she was named, named like as a Jane Doe. I don't think her name was given out, but it's well known now. And so he, he went on the run because the police were looking for him, and he was in, in hiding. He would go around to various houses of hiding, and, and he, um, he took with him some of his wives, some of the younger ones, and they dressed in Gentile clothes and tried to just blend in so that they weren't noticeable. And, and I'm not sure what year it was that he went on the run, but in July of 2006, I think it was July, he, I'm not sure I have my dates right, <laughs> but in any case, he was placed on the, on the FBI's most wanted list. Yeah, I have I have that they pull him over on August 28, 2006. Okay. In Clark yeah, County, that, Nevada. Correct. And and so um in July before that he was he took a very young plural wife and it later came out and if you remember any of the TV coverage, you might remember him holding this really small young girl with her face blanked out so that her identity wasn't 
immediately available to all the public. Um, and she had red hair, and she's very much smaller than him. When she was 12 years and 23 days old, um, Warren and her father, who was uh, uh, Merrill Jessup, and um, another man whose name was uh, Wendell Nielsen, had this, they, they, it, there was a three-way exchange of girls. So they all got together one night, and it was in, in toward the end of July, I believe July 27th. And there was, Merrill gave his young 12-year-old daughter, she was like 12 years and 23 days old, I believe. He gave her to Warren. Warren gave his daughter to um, one of these other men, and then, and then I think it was uh, Wendell Nielsen's daughter was given to Merrill Jessup's son. Now, I might not have all the, the 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 names right on that, but it was it was this three way exchange. So they all basically committed the same crime of entering into marriages with underage girls, and um, Merrill. Who, who was the daughter of the little 12-year-old, he went to prison for in Texas for conducting an illegal ceremony because he performed the ceremony where he gave his 12-year-old to Warren. And he was just paroled a couple of weeks ago. And just for um, anyone that's listening in the future, that would, right now we're recording this in March of 2015. Right. And it was just toward... I, around, I think maybe February 21st, 22nd, sometime around in then, in there, when, when, uh, Merrill was paroled. Altogether, there were, I believe, 11 men in Texas who went to prison, and, um, and Merrill had one of the shorter sentences. Merrill is also the, the husband of Carolyn Jessup, who, who wrote, she wrote a book about polygamy. And, um, She's, she's somebody who had escaped with her children. Anyway, um, so when Warren, we should probably have a trigger warning on this, but uh, in the t- it, Warren built a temple down in in at the Yearning for Zion Ranch, and that is where he raped this young girl with a couple of his other wives present at the time. At least one of whom was was Naomi who has often been called his favorite wife. And who was the widow, we talked about this, the widow of his father, Rulon. Correct. Yeah, she was married to Rulon. And and then what Warren did was, as as Rulon was getting older and in poor health, he had a whole bunch of young women sealed to Rulon, which took them essentially out of the marriage market. Um, and then when Rulin died, Warren's word went out, hands off my father's wives. And then he married a whole bunch of those, um, young women who'd been married to his father. So he kind of took them out of circulation for the rest of his father's life. And then he claimed them when he claimed his father's, uh, place in, in the religion. So anyway, it was at the end of July when 
these marriages took place. And Warren recorded, made an audio recording of his rape of this girl. Now, can you explain that to me? Because I was trying to look this up, why he would have recorded that. (laughs) Warren recorded so many things. He, he, I don't know if he made dictations every day, but very frequently. And then um, Naomi or someone would transcribe them. And so when they did the raid down in Texas, they had years of his dictations that they were able to um, to seize. And that's why we have so much information now about all of, all of the things that were going on. They also eventually broke into a vault inside of the temple down there where they found all of these priesthood records. They found recordings. They found marriage records, family group sheets. Did you ask me? Yeah, no, I said family history. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, family history. So uh, they they kept meticulous records. They were nothing if not meticulous record keepers. (laughs) So, So all of this information then was found and and so the authorities there were able to go through all of the um, uh, all of the records and and find out the underage girls um, but let's go back to when he was arrested so he's arrested in August at the time he was arrested he was carrying with him the audio recording of his rape of this child and although they seized that, that record was suppressed by a federal court as as a religious record. And it did not see the light of day until five years, about five years later, after the raid down in Texas, at the time of the trial is when it really became public. So it, it's really very disturbing that they found this recording of him raping a 12-year-old. And he was not charged with that. And and probably wouldn't have been had not the raid occurred down at the YFC ranch. But in any case, he was arrested in Nevada and placed in in jail in purgatory, which is the the, the name of the the jail, the county jail in in Hurricane, Utah. It's the Washington County Jail. And so fitting. I know it really is. <laughs> <laughs> Last summer, I, I had to go down to uh, Purgatory to, well, I, I had several things that I had to do, but I, I went to Purgatory, and and then after that, I went to St. George. It was the middle of the summer. It was really hot. And then after that, we, we drove home through, um, well, over kind of up by Colob Canyon. <laughs> so I said I went from Purgatory to Hell, meaning St. George in the summer, <laughs> to Colob. <laughs> <laughs> all in one trip. So anyway, I digress. Uh, so he was placed in jail in, in purgatory, and then he um, was put on trial as an accomplice to rape in the case of um, Elisa Wall. He was convicted of that, but the conviction was later overturned on a technicality. By the time it was overturned, this other stuff had been found out, and and so he was not released. And even it was overturned. It was they could have retried him. It was it was basically overturned because of a 
of a, the way a particular jury instruction was worded. So they didn't clear him. The, the FLDS liked to think that, that he was cleared. He was not. But because of the way the jury was instructed, they reversed the decision, and the, and the state of Utah could have had another trial and, and then corrected the way they instructed the jury. While he was in jail, in purgatory, he had a time when he seemed to have a, a fit of conscience. And during that time, he denounced himself as prophet. And he did it several times. I've got about, I don't know, six or eight recordings of him denouncing himself. The most well-known one, the one that was played on on television, was that he had his brother Nephi come to visit him, and then he told him that he said, I'm not the prophet. I've never been the prophet. I was immoral with a sister and a daughter. And he said to look to Elder William Jessup as the prophet. And he said, I want you to make this known to everyone, to to the priesthood people and and to the public and um, and Nephi this this happened this particular one Nephi was there and there was a camera recording everything. There's a YouTube video and yes, Nadine, I'm going to play a clip uh, for the listeners. Okay, that'll be good. I'm not the prophet. I never was the prophet, and I have been deceived by the powers of evil. And Brother William E. Jessup has been the prophet since Father's passing, since the passing of my father. And I have been the most wicked man in this dispensation, in the the eyes of God, in taking charge of my father's family, when the Lord his God told him not to, because he could not hear him. The Lord came yesterday, now two days ago, and bestowed upon me the gift to understand his words when he spoke to me without the powers of evil interfering so that I could have this opportunity to undo what I have done. And I ask for everyone's forgiveness and say, Farewell forever, you who are worthy, for Zion, for I will not be there. Give this to all the priest and people's message to you. Okay. Right? And let everyone see the video who wants to. The Lord wants me to. For the Lord has God, 
who has redeemed his soul. He whispers, you need, I need to get a copy of this video before you leave if you can order it. You can tell he's still dictating to me to tell you Nephi before he leaves me to my punishment. Nephi was very, he, he was writing it all down and he, he just he couldn't believe what he was hearing. He said, no, no, you are the prophet. And, and Warren said, no, I'm not the prophet. <laughs> so why, and, why this certain confession? Why then? Nobody really knows what, happened while he was in jail there. He did a lot of fasting. At one point, uh, he attempted suicide. Um, so I, I, I think that to the extent that, that any, that the FLDs know about this, and, and many of them don't know, but, but to the extent they do, and if, if they're still in, they probably rationalize it by, by thinking that he was, he was depressed or he had been drugged. So anyway, he, he did this and, and he went into court and he had a, a, a note on a, on a pad of paper that he was not the prophet. And he tried to speak up in court and say it, but his, his attorneys basically stopped him, physically restrained him from saying what he was going to say. But a reporter from the Deseret News snapped a picture of what he'd written on this, on this pad. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, but it was that he was not the prophet anymore. After that, though, he, it, well, that was not the only call he made on, he, he called, uh, his mother, he called other people in the community and said the same thing. And those, those calls were all recorded at the, at when he was in jail, uh, at purgatory. Um, but then after it was all over, he decided he was the prophet again. And now, of course, he's sending out revelations and instructions and still running the church from, from jail. So when he was, um, after the, the trial, the decision was reversed, um, like I said, by this time there were the charges pending in Texas. There were also charges pending in Arizona, but they wound up just transporting him down to Texas where he went to trial. At the trial, he was convicted of of two counts of sexual assault, one of them involving the 12-year-old, which was an aggravated charge because of her age, and one involving a girl who was, uh, well, he married her when she was 14. They had proof that he, that he had relations with her when she was 15 because she had a baby. And so they, they got pictures of, of her with the baby, they've got uh, uh, his record of the marriage, and then they've got his DNA. When the case went to trial, he um, he had a, a team of attorneys who made a motion to suppress the evidence based on an improper seizure. So that the the, the seizure of the evidence um, went to a hearing. And the, the, the judge determined that it was properly seized. And I'll talk about that a little bit more. But, but be, because she determined it was properly seized, the case 
went ahead and went to trial. And at that point, Warren fired his attorneys. So he went to trial unrepresented by counsel, but the judge told his attorneys to, to stay there and to be with him in case he changed his mind so that they could step back in. Um, so now let's go back to the topic of how the evidence got seized in the first place, if that's okay. Warren had, uh, of course, the, the, the community in Shore Creek where, where the, the majority of the FLDs, LDS people live. And he had started up communities in various other places, which you talked about in your, in your, um, other recording on, on that topic. And the, the biggest one that they were building up was down in Texas. And he called it the Yearning for Zion Ranch or the YFC Ranch. And, um, that's where he had a temple constructed, and it was the first time the FLDS had had a temple. And I'm not really sure what their what their beliefs are about the temple, um, or what they understood about why he was building the temple. But of course, they did see it as a sacred place. So in the temple, he, they they had a, a vault built inside, a, a big a, a room that had a safe door on it. And um, what Warren did in the temple is he took his young wives there and he instructed them on how to be heavenly wives. And he held what he called heavenly sessions. And so he would have them um, meet with them, disrobe. He talked about how um, how to please him. Um, he described how they should dress, how they should shower before they came to him, how they should cut their pubic hair. Um, he told them that they should be comfortable being unclothed with him and with each other. And he told them that sometimes he had harsh atonements put upon him by the Lord and that because of that, sometimes he needed his heavenly wives to come to him with more than one wife at the same time. And and he taught that this was the higher law of Sarah. Now the law of Sarah within their beliefs is that the wife gives a new wife to her husband. But the higher law of Sarah was that more than wife more than one wife comes to him at a time and if there is one where he tells them that. So um he he also had a special large bed constructed. And um, the it, it was kind of a table. It had sides that could be pulled up. And, um, and, and he was very specific about how it was to be constructed. And that is the bed that he used with the young girl that I've spoken about. Her name is pretty well known, but I'm not going to say it. Um, so, uh, when he, re he, just as he recorded all of these training sessions, he also recorded, there was one where it took place in, in water, like a baptismal font. I mean, people think that it was probably in the baptismal font at the temple that, that he built, where they're kind of just having a, an orgy. Um, 
and 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 then uh the one where where he's with the young girl is is really very disturbing um I don't know how much you want me to go into that, but in any case, you can, uh, you can go in as much detail as you feel comfortable with. And again, we'll just warn our listeners that this episode has trigger warnings, lots of them. Okay. All right. Well, I, I've, I've listened to the tape several times because it was part of one, a, a case that I was involved in. And, um, so in this, in this, uh, instance, he, he has this young girl. He talks to her. He um, he tells her, he talks about about being heavenly wife, and in the and then it it gets to a point where there's you know his heavy breathing and and after a few minutes of this, he gives her a priesthood blessing right in the middle of what he's doing. At the end, he. Um, he asks her how she feels, and this little girl voice says, I feel fine, thank you, or words to something like that. And uh, and he, then he says, untie us, please, Naomi. Now, in, in my view, Naomi should have been tried as an accomplice, and she should be sitting in prison as well. But for whatever reason, they, they chose not to prosecute her. Where is Na- Naomi now? I don't think anyone knows. I think she's still in in hiding in one place or another. There was another female who was also there when when this took place. Um, but I've been told she was underage, and so uh, th- there was not interest in 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 uh, prosecuting her. But since they didn't prosecute Naomi anyway, I guess they had no interest in prosecuting the women, which I think is a huge mistake. I think they need to prosecute women who allow this to go on. Punishment segment tonight. The trial of polygamist sect leader Warren Jeffs is getting close to the end, but not before getting even more dramatic and stranger. Court resumes tomorrow morning when Jeffs will continue presenting his own defense in his sexual assault trial. Now, after playing a dramatic audio tape that seemed to shock and sadden jury members, Prosecution rested its case early today. Now, on that tape, Jeffs is heard allegedly having sex with a 12-year-old girl. Joining me live from San Angelo is Gary Tuckman, also KTVK award-winning investigative reporter Mike Watkins. So, Gary, the, the prosecution closed its case playing this audio. I, I heard a lot of people in court saying it was among the more disturbing things that's ever heard. What did, what, could you, what did you hear, and how did the jury react? It was very disturbing, not just for the jury, but for the 150 of us in the courtroom is packed listening to a 50-year-old man apparently have sex with a 12-year-old girl, and she was just 11 years old the month before. What makes it worse, Anderson, is that Warren Jeffs does not deny the accusations in court, but this audio tape, what it showed was that Warren Jeffs regularly taped these sexual experiences he had. He called them training sessions for heavenly wives. But what happened on this audio tape, we heard Warren Jeffs say that feels good, how do you feel? And this little girl voice said, very good. And it was so sad because we've seen pictures of her in court. She's small for her age. She has red hair. She was described by a witness as having red hair and freckles, and she looks like Pippi Longstocking. And then at one point at the very end, Warren Jeff said, what do you feel? And she said, I feel fine. Thank you. And the tape lasted 20 minutes, Anderson. There was heavy breathing. It was very uncomfortable. 
and sad being there, but the prosecution feels they needed to play it for this jury. And, and Mike, and then after all this, Mike, then it was Je the prosecution rest, and then it's Warren Jeff's turn to present his case, and you say that's when it became like the theater of the absurd. Yeah, I think that's a pretty accurate description. Mr. Jeffs is not a lawyer, and he proved that today. Uh, first of all, he begged and pleaded and stammered in front of the judge, asking for more time to prepare. She says, you've had years to prepare for this. You're on at 3 o'clock this afternoon. He then got, got up and basically did a 30-minute stump speech, sort of a stump sermon, the kind of thing that he delivers before his flock, talking about religious history and the persecution of his people over the last 150 years. Your, your, your eyes glazed over. Uh, at this point, Mr. Jeffs has interjected and sermonized so much in this, uh, this, this trial. You wonder what the impact is on the jury. Uh, in juxtapose that with this tape where you have this meek little girl talking and Mr. Jeffs apparently having sex. Uh, it was very impactful, I think, for all of us in the courtroom today. And, and, and Gary, he, he called as his first witness a member of the FLDS, but they didn't really, I mean, he still hasn't addressed the, the allegations against him, right? Well, well, that's right, Anderson. We didn't know he would call a witness. Then all of a sudden he called one of his followers, a guy we know. And it basically felt like an FLDS Sunday school session. The Book of Mormon was brought in as... Uh, their first piece of evidence, and they basically read the Book of Mormon to each other. And Warren Jeff's defense is not that he didn't have this sex. His defense is that this is a violation of his freedom of religion. And he got his witness, the member of his church, to say that, yes, throughout history, Mormon's religion has been violated. But then, when the prosecution cross-examined this man, they said to him, do you believe Warren Jeff's is a prophet? He said, yes. Do you believe Warren Jeff's talked to God? And, they said, and he said, yes. And they said, but do you have sex with 15-year-old girls? And the man had a lawyer with him. He talked to his lawyer before he said anything. And then he said, no. Do you have sex with 12-year-old girls? And he said, no. Do you have sex with a lot of girls at once, which Warren Jeffs apparently does in these tapes? And the man said, no. And the point that the prosecution's trying to make is that this is Warren Jeffs doing this. This is not necessarily other members of the FLDS, even though they do regard him as the prophet. And, and Mike, it, Warren Jeffs on the tape doesn't use the word sex at all. He has all these sort of code words. What, what, is, he, what is he talking about? Is it, are these all FLDS yeah. codes? Having grown up in the, the area around Utah, yeah, there's this ornate religious language that Mr. Jeffs seems to be unable to speak in anything but this stuff. And he talks about heavenly sessions. He refers to the young woman as a heavenly comfort wife. It's, yeah, it's all this sort of coded language that has been used for generations in that community. Yeah. Never just outright talks about sex because they're above that. This is this is a God ordained practice in the at least in the words of Mr. Jeff. So you know it's very bizarre to hear him discuss that in the tape. To hear this meek little voice, you only hear it a couple of times. I mean, it, it just plunged a dagger into your heart. And uh, I think uh, amid the heavy breathing, it just uh, the jurors just walked away stunned. And Mike, I was really interested. I want to re get make sure I read this correctly. That Jeff's filed a motion to get the judge on the case dismissed or recused, and in it, it seems like he's threatening her. He claims in, in this brief that, um, he, that he's channeling God, and he says, quote, let also Barbara Walters, the, the judge's name, be of a humbling to know I have sent a crippling disease upon her which shall take her life soon.
Yeah, I think that you get a good insight into the character of Warren Jeffs. This uh, judge has been rock solid. She has done a, such a good job in such a difficult situation. Apparently, as a child, she suffered polio. She has a brace on one of her legs and walks with a noticeable limp. And he's now implying in this revelation from God that he filed as a motion in court that that act, that her that her infirmity was an act of his vengeful God. And now she's going to die. I can tell you, she is arriving the last couple of days since this was filed with a much greater degree of security. She was driving herself right. to the court through much of this trial. Now she's being delivered in a big Texas-sized law enforcement pickup truck with yeah. lots of guards. They're taking this as a threat. And, and Gary, uh, is this going to wrap up soon? Or do we know? We thought it would wrap up today, Anderson, but she, Barbara Walther, as Mike was saying, she's tough, but she is not limiting Warren Jeff. She want, doesn't want there to be a mistrial right. or a reversal in an appeals court. So we don't know how long this will take. He talked three hours and 50 minutes to this witness, and it ended just an hour ago, court for the day, and he'll continue questioning this fellow member of his church tomorrow. Right. Fascinating. Gary, Mike, appreciate the time. So, um, so Warren was convicted, and he received a prison term of of life plus 20 years. And I think he will actually be eligible to be considered for parole in 2038. He got some credit for time served. And um, I, I don't expect that he will be let out of prison even then. He continues to run the church from prison. And he uh, has... He, he, he has sent out, oh gosh, dozens of revelations and, and, and they've, the FLDS have produced a couple books of his revelations, uh, that, that they then send out to, um, they send them to libraries, they send them to government officials. In, in fact, um, at the beginning of this, of this legislative term, the Utah legislature is now in session and, and, I remember reading that they were going to try to amend the the statute on on legislators accepting gifts because they all got the, these books in the mail from from Warren and or from the FLDS and they they by law they're not allowed to keep them and so they have to send them back. So it's become a big expense <laughs> to return all these books that, that have been sent to them. Yeah, so I know. I was I, at the state archives and uh, looking for fundamentalist pamphlets, and they're like, oh, yeah, we got this in the mail. So, I, uh, and I heard reports of, like, even school teachers at some random schools getting some. Yeah, I and, and I think some ministers got them. Um I, I know that the the library here in Cedar City has I don't know if they have that book but they have um, like three softbound books uh, of his revelations. I have a copy of his uh, of his book. It's like eight hundred pages long on thin thin paper, and I got it off Amazon because there are so many people got them who don't want them that you can go on Amazon and get one for like five dollars. I've heard there's a new uh, a new version out since I got mine. An updated version. Um, his no, really quick, you were you were telling me before we started recording that he is in solitary confinement. And yes, he is. So he has he a is. lot of time to write, dictate. Right. 
he does, and and he's in he's in solitary confinement. He's in a cell, uh, basically twenty three out of twenty four hours a day, um, and so he really has no contact with other people. I consider that cruel and unusual punishment. As I, I do as well. Earlier, um, but he he's in he's in protective custody because he's a child molester. But it just it just seems to me like there's got to be a better way to keep to keep prisoners safe um, than to to keep them in solitary confinement all the time. I think that's really cruel. Um, but yeah, he's he's uh, he really doesn't have a whole lot to do. I've heard that he has a a typewriter and television, and so he has a lot of revelations. They they the nature of his revelations is that they're very general. Um, you know, predicting earthquakes in Japan isn't too hard to do, or in California. Um, predict predict predicting tornadoes in the Midwest isn't too hard to do or hurricanes on the Gulf Coast. So, so he predicts he predicts uh like these prophetic warnings like there will be a tornado in Kansas and then his followers say <laughs> things like that. The yeah. prophet is true. <laughs> and and part of the reason God is sending these horrible natural disasters because because his country is persecuting him, God's holy prophet. And so, um, sometimes these, these revelations come with, with, um, warnings that these disasters are going to happen if, if he's not released from prison. Are they coherent? I mean, when you're reading through this book, can you piece together what he is trying to say? They've become increasingly incoherent. If you look at his earlier writings, they all hang together. They're they're intelligible, but in the last few years, the language he uses has has become very difficult to read because it's incoherent. <laughs> I, maybe I'll bring something up if I can find it. I I have lots of of those downloaded to my computer, but I don't know if I could find them quickly. But um, he. He's been referring to himself as uh, Sun Amun, A-H-M-A-N. Now, is, is this related to the group, the Sons of Amun, who are near the Nevada border that have built their pyramid in the desert? I, I don't think it's related to that. I think they have a common ancestor. I see. I, okay. I, I was listening uh, earlier to the to a Mormon Stories podcast about the minutes from the Council of Fifty. And um, they they read a passage that dealt with Son Amun, and it seems to mean Son of God, but it's it's kind of it's not real clear from Warren's writings what he means by it. What he has done since he's been in in prison, really since he'd been on the run, has just devastated families down in Short Creek. It's it's a real human tragedy what has happened because he has um, sent men out to be corrected and they lose their priesthood. Their families are then required to treat them as apostates using this sermon that I read part of of it to you earlier. Um, and where do some of these men go? I have read interviews from the wives that they leave behind, like the Steed family, uh, Willie Steed's parents right. are one that right. have famously done it. But the, 
where do these men go? Do they go work and still pay tithes to the church? Do they go become yeah. apostates? What what happens? Well, what they they go various places. Uh, a, a lot of them have gone like up to um, North Dakota to work in the in the oil fields up there, the natural gas fields. And yes, they are expected. Generally, they're expected to to continue to pay tithing and send that back to the church. Although it's it's not universal. Um, I know of one man who was kicked out, and they would not accept his his. Uh, he he tried to send money back to support his family. They wouldn't accept it. His family wouldn't accept I, it. I Lyle, I think, rejected it. I see. Okay, that family is back together now. But but um, the some of the men I I believe are expected to continue to pay tithing, and and then what happens sometimes is the women don't have support. The man isn't there, and so they go down and they get um, they get financial aid. They get food stamps and and uh, medical care. Um, and uh, there, a, a year or so ago, the county supervisor, uh, one of the county supervisors in Mojave County, which is where the, the Arizona side of Short Creek, Colorado City is, and he had crunched the numbers, and they were getting about a half million dollars a month of federal aid going into Short Creek. Wow. So the taxpayers are really on the hook for a whole lot of money that's being used to support these families down there after the husbands are kicked out. So even if they're sending money back, it's not going to their families. Can you talk about, I heard that recently Warren has said that uh, there are only 15 men that are allowed to father the children now and there has to be a witness present? That is certainly rumored. I don't think anybody has any proof, but... um, uh, I, I've heard what I think are pretty reliable rumors about it. And this, this has, you have to understand that you have to go back to what I told you earlier about how at the end of, uh, of 2011, he dissolved all the marriages and people are no longer allowed to live as husband and wife. Now, you've done all this work on polygamy and one of the things I'm sure you've learned in this is that the mandate of polygamy is to not let any year go by without children being born in the principle. You're familiar with that? Yes. In fact, I've talked to women who have said that they have been referred to as cattle. I think Irene Spencer, I can't remember if she said this on air or not, but she was talking about how they said, I think it was said to her mother, that even, um, that you know what we do to cows who don't have kids every year? We go out and shoot them. Mm, wow. What group was she with? She was, was with she the LeBarons. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. That's what I was thinking. You know, I, I don't I don't think that all um, women in, in plural marriages are treated that way. I, I think plural families vary uh, just as much as monogamous families do. The, the situation of polygamy obviously puts women at, at a, a disadvantage, but... Yeah, but there is extreme it, it, cultural pressure to have children. I mean, I'm yes. I'm a Mormon woman, and I remember right. being criticized for telling everyone we were going to stop having three kids. And that seems absurd to me now because three kids sounds like so much to me because I have three kids. But right. I remember that, and and we're you know that is very progressive, like by the, by these standards that we're talking about. Correct. 
correct, definitely. And and the pressure was even greater when I was young and having children. Um, there was really a lot of a lot of preaching against birth control back then, back in the you know sixties, seventies, even eighties. And I I think birth control is very unusual in in many of the polygamous groups, but families are are more or less functional depending on the family. And uh, I think that in a lot of families, um, husbands and wives love each other, plural wives love each other, but plural families puts a, a tremendous strain on many families as well. So, Well, and it increases and, your risk of dysfunction, right? If you have a dis- dysfunctional yes. father, then you're going to spread that out around five families because for his Correct. five wives. So it exactly. kind of increases your odds. Right. And there's a, a, a tremendous amount of um, information about the problems of polygamy if you read the decision in Canada. I don't know if you've done that, but the the Supreme Court in British Columbia did a, a big trial where they assembled a, a large group of experts on polygamy, people who've studied polygamy all over the world. They interviewed the, the women up there. Um, they, they gave immunity to them so they could talk about their um, about their situations without fearing being prosecuted they they gave them anonymity and in the end the decision was that it was reasonable for British Columbia to keep its to, to keep polygamy illegal that is to keep it a crime because of all of the societal harms that it causes. And um, it, sometime you you might even want to do a a, a, broad, a podcast on some of the findings that are in that decision. Yeah, we will. We're uh, Janet Benyon is going to be coming on the podcast and talk about her work. Uh, you know, she's done a lot oh. of work. Are you familiar with Janet Benyon? Um, you know, the name's familiar, but I couldn't place what kind of work she's done. She talks about how polygamy affects women specifically. Yeah. So we're going to be... Was she, was she one of the experts that testified up there? I believe she was. I believe that they referenced her work. Okay. Yeah, and, and that I, I think that's why her name is familiar to me. But basically they said polygamy harms women, and they, they describe all the reasons why there, there is, are more problems for women in polygamy than in monogamy. It harms men because, so, you know... We got Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Edith and Ellen and Eileen and Eleanor. We're, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, um, we, we exist on this planet basically on a 50-50 ratio in the absence of plagues or war or the aging process where men die younger than women. So at the, at the extreme end you know, of life, we've got more women than men, but for most of our lives, we exist in pretty equal numbers. So for, if one man's got two wives, some other man doesn't have a wife. And when you have men who are taking, you know, five, ten wives, then that's five, ten men without a wife. And so what happens is the men have to leave those groups. And we, the, the FLDS are kind of notorious for it because of the Lost Boys that had a lot of publicity. But it happens in other groups as well. I, I'm surprised living here in southern Utah. I'm surprised at how often I run into people who have 
roots in polygamy. And I had a guy come into my office a few months ago, and he, I, I wound up not representing him, but, but he'd been in the AUB group, and when he was 15 or so, he was kicked out. His father asked him if he wanted to be involved in polygamy, and he said no. So his father said, okay, get out. So um, it's it's problematic. So it's problematic for women. It's problematic for men. It's problematic for children. Uh, like in the decision, they, they documented how children have less parental involvement from their fathers because their fathers are, are spread thin. And um, also because fathers... Many fathers continue to put energy into seeking new wives that they might otherwise put into their children. And also, <laughs> they've got more wives. They've got more women that they need to interact with, which which cuts on their cuts down on their time for being with their children. So, um, it'll be. I'm glad you're going to talk to her. I, I think that'll be a, an interesting podcast. Yeah, yeah. She's done a lot of work. Um, she's she went up and lived with the AUB in Montana for several years. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, good. Um, but back to, to what, what's going on with the, the FLDS. So he dissolved the families. And, and so there's not really a way to know who, whether there are children being born. But someone I know down here in Cedar was at a gas station recently, and he saw a pregnant woman and a, a woman with a young child. The, the, who were dressed in the traditional FLDS clothing. So that kind of suggests that some women may, may be, are, are continuing to have babies. But as far as we know, they're not allowed to within their marriages. So then, then the, um, the rumors started emerging that, um, there, there was a new ordinance for, um, for reproduction, and that s- certain men were designated. At first, the first thing I heard was that there were three men. Then I heard that there were twelve, and then the more more recently, but but even then, probably more than a year ago, um, that they were saying there were fifteen. It's hard to pin this stuff down. Some people who are still in, if if, if they're found out that they're communicating with anybody on the outside. They are kicked out immediately, and it's it's such a it's so traumatic. Just put yourself in in the situation. You're a guy who goes out to work every day, and because you're out of the community, you start finding things out. But you can't even talk to your wives about it because if you say one word about it to your wife, you might get reported, and if you get reported. You're going to get kicked out, and you and so maybe by maybe you're even starting to figure out that things aren't right, and you maybe you want to even you'd like to get your family out, but if you're kicked out, your family's still in, so people are really held hostage that way. Um, some people who are there, um, or who have come out and and talked about what it was like inside believe that um, that Lyle is the problem. Lyle is Warren's brother, uh, full brother, and and he's the bishop of Short Creek. And so some people think that he's the problem and that if the prophet, Warren, 
came back, then these things wouldn't be happening to their families. So they they know something's wrong, but they 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 don't believe that it's wrong with Warren. And even when they come out, sometimes they're very reluctant to look at what happened, what, what Warren did. Um, but it's it's a it's a place that I think is full of a lot of fear right now because if people don't toe the line, um, they they're at risk of not just being kicked out, but being kicked out without their families. So I heard there was some controversy in who was actually leading it. So it's still Warren is still considered the prophet. Yes. And his brother is running things. His brother Lyle is running things. Now there have been a few times, to- a couple of times, two or three times at least, where Lyle has been corrected and he's been sent away. Corrected now, some by people- whom? Pardon? Corrected by whom? Uh, <laughs> by Warren. <laughs> I see. Okay. So, so, um, but I don't know exactly who did the denouncing of him. I because at one point I I heard that he was corrected from the pulpit, and which means that somebody in a meeting said that that Lyle was was being corrected and sent away, and so he's been sent out. But his corrections haven't lasted very long, and and there are there are other people who have been corrected but who haven't had to stay away very long. I think some of it depends on how how in they are with <laughs> with Lyle or, or others who are who are kind of running the show and also maybe with how much they know. I think there are some people who, who stay in who do know a lot and they can't afford to let them out. Um, because we but have to anyways, remember like so Lyle has the the people that are in the community at this point, this generation that's growing up now has little to no education. Correct. Little to no yes, money. And, and you you talked about that in your other podcast, how they, how Warren told them to take all their children out of school and how it really devastated the school district. And so they've all been homeschooled and it's, for many of them, that is very, very minimal. And, and the other thing is, it was 2006 when Warren was arrested and so no ceilings have taken place since then because he's the only one with a ceiling authority. So it's now eight years later, going on nine years later, and kids who were, you know, sixteen then, are are getting up to be in their mid twenties now, and they they have no hope to marry and and form a family because there's no ceiling authority. So you know we hear reports that young people are leaving because they maybe find somebody and fall in love, and <laughs> so they leave. Is the control um, as tight in the group now, since Warren's not there? I mean, are they are they allowed, are boys and girls allowed to fraternize a little bit more or be together or break certain rules that wouldn't have been allowed under Warren's strict eye? I think, if anything, they're tighter now. They, they have, they've, I mean, they've separated sexes for people who are married, <laughs> let alone people Good who point. are not. <laughs> Good point. And uh, the other thing that's going on is there, there are two groups inside. There's the United Order group and and the group that isn't in the United Order, which is sometimes referred to as the Repentance group. And so we've heard varying reports about whether people who are in the United Order 
are really allowed to fraternize even with, with the people who are not in the United Order. And, and I think there's a lot of fear. I, I think for anybody who kind of figures out what's going on, they don't have anybody to talk to. And uh, one of the things that, that I heard from somebody who came out, just, just as an example, everything has to go now through the United Order, so through the bishop's storehouse. So um, instead of, if you if you have a neighbor and you want to bake them some cookies, you can't go give them the cookies. You have to give them to the storehouse and let the storehouse distribute them. That's, and so if somebody needs help, you aren't even supposed to go give them help. You're supposed to go through the proper channels to make sure they get help. So it's become very, very dysfunctional. Now, and there's what so is many Utah's, the Utah government's involvement with them currently? Are they, and the Texas government, are they working with these people to get them aid and make sure that these abuses aren't being perpetuated? There really isn't a way to do it. The, I, I, I do believe that investigations are going on. Now, there's some lawsuits going on. The The Justice Department is suing the twin towns of, of uh, Hilldale and Colorado City. And so, um, they, they, and they've taken a lot of depositions, and they're suing them for civil rights violations against people who, the, the, the police force down there called the Marshal's Office has long been considered to be an arm of the FLDS church and and th- to get their instructions from the FLDS leaders. Of course, they always deny that, but um, that's part of what the lawsuit is about. And so they're taking, uh, they're ta- they've been taking depositions and um, they're, it, they can't sue the church because churches can do what they want. But these are, these are um, pur- purportedly, Government officials in in the police office in the in the marshal's office and in the uh, in the county or, or rather the city government and so they're being sued because of the way they treat um, uh, non-members versus members. Um, so that lawsuit is going on. But the interesting thing that's happened there is. Another part of the legal aspects of what's happened is that um, back, oh gosh, it's been I think more than 10 years ago, the, there was a lawsuit called the Lost Boys lawsuit, and and they sued um, Warren and, and the, the trust, the United Order, uh, the United Effort Plan, which I believe you also mentioned today in the, in the other podcast, um, and and Warren directed that people should answer them nothing. And so what that meant was they did not file an answer in the lawsuit, so they lost it by default. And so because of that, uh, the attorneys who brought the suit said, these people aren't defending the assets of the trust, so the state needs to move in and take control of the assets. And so they they did, and they they appointed a trustee who was Bruce Wisen, and um, that the litigation over the trust has continued on and on, but with but with secular control of the trust, with Bruce, Bruce Wisen as the trustee, and now they've got. Well, I'm I'm not sure if they've replaced him, but but they they the, the FLDS have lost control of their property. So people, what used to happen is when people got kicked out of the the FLDS community, they also lost their home. 
because they didn't own the home. The, the home was owned by the United Effort Plan. And so they didn't, there was no place for them to go back. Even if they built that house themselves from the ground up, they, they lost their interest in it. But with the state in charge of trust, the people can go back and get a certificate, certificate of occupancy from the trust and they can live in their home. So now we've got down there a, a, a fairly sizable community of people who are no longer FLDS, who are former FLDS. And, and remember, I told you that that Warren said to look to um, Elder Will, William uh, E. Jessup. This is not Willie Jessup, the, sometimes called Willie the Thug. He was the bodyguard of Warren, and he's out of the FLDS now. But but there's it's a different William Jessup, and he is the the leader of the new group. He doesn't call himself a prophet, but so they've got another religious community that's meeting down there. We've got people living there. And because of that, the the school district has opened a school there that's got, I don't know, I think it's like close to 150 kids in it now. And they're, they're not the FLDS because they're not allowed to be in school. But there are enough people back there now who have children that it warrants having a public school. Wow. So, um, so we, I've kind of got, gotten sidetracked again, but but no, when, that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it's it is. It's really interesting what's going on down there. Well, the other thing that does is you, you ask what happens when people get kicked out. Well, some of them stay in Southern Utah if they've got work or businesses down here, and some go up somewhere up north and or maybe to North Dakota and and work up there. Where if if they go like to a place like North Dakota, then they're they're going to be men, it's usually men who have been uh, who, who've been corrected and, and, and sent out. So then they can they, they they're in community up there. And the ones who still believe in Warren, um, even though they're corrected, they still have loyalty to him and those are the ones who are probably sending back money to the group. But but increasingly some people who get kicked out have people who are already on the outside. And that's fairly common also is is that they will find an uncle a brother a cousin uh who has either left or been kicked out before so when they're kicked out they're not necessarily on the streets although when they're young it can be really tough for them yeah and there's a documentary called sons of perdition which i'm going to link to and uh, yeah. I'd recommend people can watch that about sort of the struggles with the Lost Boys. And even that is complicated because uh, I don't have his name off the top of my head. The guy that was taking him in, was it Jeremy Johnson? Is that correct? Yes, and he's involved in the in the lawsuit over, or he's being prosecuted yeah. over, uh, over unrelated dealings. But he did a lot for to help them. And there was a guy up in, in Salt, the Salt Lake area, a former dentist, Fisher, like Dan maybe, who also did a lot for the Lost Boys. And then the as a result of the litigation, there was a trust fund set up that's been able to help them some. So uh but but what's but the, the new development with people being able to stay in their homes is now there are apostates right there in the community. And so if people get kicked out if they leave, um there's some help for them from people who used to be FLDS who are now right there in Short Creek. So when, when, when Suzette 
you're familiar with, when she left, she she got a ride up north from somebody who was there in the community. There was someone there that she could go to. And I've been curious about the involvement of LDS members because I think it's holding out hope that they've placed some of the, these people into LDS homes or a lot of these people that leave convert to the LDS church. And I find that strange, personally. I guess I shouldn't because the history of these groups, everyone jumps groups back and forth all the time. <laughs> yeah. But what is your opinion about that? Um, it's it's holding out help, I believe. Um, yeah, holding out and, help. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, they're, they're most, I, I believe they come out of a Christian tradition, as does um, the Shield and Refuge ministry that Doris Hansen has. She has a TV program called polygamy what love is this and and um they they help people though regardless of where what spiritual path they're on at that right. point uh, right. a lot of those people are fed up with religion altogether oh yeah they, no they i didn't mean to, to uh specifically right. like single them out but i mean like have you found that it's healthy for fundamentalists to leave the the religion and go to the lds church um i i know that there are some who've done it I don't know any personally who have done it, but I, but I'm certain I've certainly heard stories of people who who do that. And do they um, do it? Do they integrate successfully? I know of people that are sort of uh, lapsed fundamentalists, I guess, or you know, they grew up in it and then they married into the LDS Church, so it's a little bit different. But I didn't know if it stuck with anyone else. I think it does. Um, I know someone who had a mother who left and and joined the LDS church and they they've retained uh, they retained um contact with one another um because Warren teaches that the F, that the LDS church is a great and abominable church right uh yes i i he he teaches that the that the LDS are apostates or or children of apostates. So, so we might not exactly be apostates because it wasn't we who left fundamentalism, but our ancestors did, and so we're we're the sons and daughters of of apostates. So, there's there's the Gentiles, people who've never had anything to do with any branch of Mormonism, and then there's the uh, apostates who have left, and then there's the Mormons who are um, sons of apostates. <laughs> so, if you become if you become an excommunicated LDS Mormon, you turn away from your apostasy, right? Like you get you're the apostate apostate. I wonder how that works. <laughs> so, yeah. Nadine, I have a question because I've been you know sure. really doing this research, and I should point out that Nadine, Nadine, are you comfortable with me sharing who your son-in-law is? Oh yes, by all means. So Nadine's son-in-law is Todd Compton, of course, someone who we owe a lot of credit to and a lot of thanks on this series because he wrote the book in Sacred Loneliness and was really one of the first people to bring these stories to light about the wives of Joseph Smith. And so you're quite familiar with the history of polygamy and you have been able to meet so many of these people that whose lives have been affected by it. So if I were to ask you the question that's always asked to me, I'm curious to know what you think, which is, what do you think the legacy of Joseph Smith is? Do you think it's polygamy? How would you answer that question? Oh, absolutely, it's polygamy. I think polygamy has been 
uh, just such a huge shaper of what Mormonism is. Um, uh, not only is is my son-in-law, the writer of that book, one of the women is my fourth great-grand-aunt. That's Martha McBride Knight. Oh, I didn't know that about you. Yeah. <laughs> um, but from the inception of polygamy, there has been massive lying about it. And that, and, and secrecy, and, and that culture of secrecy and lying, and the, the intense need to keep secrets and to, and to sort of in some ways bond as a, as a society around those secrets that was so common in the 19th century. I, I, I just think that that has been a, a, a huge source of influence toward, toward our whole culture of secrecy. And and I think it's part of why, a, a huge part of why Mormons are so sensitive about their history and why it's taken until 2013, 2014 to get essays that admit the truth about, uh, uh, that begin to admit the truth about polygamy and still haven't come clean. I, I think polygamy in in very significant ways defined and shaped Mormonism. I absolutely agree. What what do you think the legacy of polygamy is? Well, uh, part of part of the legacy is the continued uh, patriarchal fundamentalist polygamy that still exists today, and we we can't disclaim that. I mean, that is Mormon fundamentalist polygamy. I, I know President Hinckley said, oh, we're not, we're not related to them. They're not Mormon. Most of them have never been Mormon. And if we find out that they're practicing polygamy, we excommunicate them. But they're all part of this Mormon tradition. They're all part of our Mormon family. Yeah, I agree. And, I don't think we can separate ourselves. I mean, that's been the most striking thing about this research is figuring out how similar we are, not how different we are. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and polygamy continues to shape relationships within the contemporary LDS church because polygamy still exists. People, people still are, are married polygamously for the next life. There, there are, there are children sealed to men they never met because their mothers are sealed to somebody and they couldn't get a temple divorce. And now the mother's remarried, and those children have a father who who their mother is married to now, and they never met the man that they are sealed to. Yeah, and what do you think that does to a child who is growing up in the church, and and here's the message that families are forever, and that child figures out, I'm not sealed to my parents, I'm sealed to my mother and some other man, and in the next life, I'm going to belong to some other guy who wasn't worth my mother staying with. Yeah, I mean, not only is it completely a lopsided sealing practice that is unfair to women and unfair to children, but I, I think polygamy in the LDS church is the ghost of Christmas future. It's it's something that's always peeking its head around the corner for LDS women and probably some LDS men as well. Oh, I, 
I, I, you know, <laughs> we, we see those discussions online all the time of, of how painful polygamy continues to be for women and how painful it is for men, for, for men who, men who, I, I know men who've been divorced and they can't get divorced. They didn't want to be together with this woman in this life. And now they're a polygamous in the next wife because they're still married to the wife they didn't, they couldn't live with here and now. So they are involuntary polygamous. Yeah, and I've, I've spoken to several women in these scenarios as well, and it just really sets up these family relationships with attention that these people do not want to be walking into to begin with. Exactly. Yeah, I, I agree. It's so, it's so complicated. I, I, I think the church hierarchy needs to do something about this because it affects people here and now in the LDS church in very, very painful ways that they seem to not care about. Why do you think they don't? Well, <laughs> I think that it, it, it's because they cannot, they can't renounce polygamy or they don't think they can renounce polygamy. And it's not, maybe not affecting them. And if they do anything about it, it undercuts the, the foundational polygamous claims of the church. And, and, and this, it's more than just polygamy. It's the, it's the whole idea that the leadership can never leave the, lead the church astray, that everything they do is always right. And if they admit all of the bad parts of Mormon history that include polygamy, and, and, and that comes to be seen as not inspired by God, then they have to face the fact that maybe every decision they make is also not inspired by God. So we kind of got Brigham Young thrown under the bus on the racism issue. Um, but it took, it took until last year to do it. And, and it's kind of buried in places where most Mormons don't even know. They don't even read the essays. And I, I think that the leadership of the LDS Church at some point needs to admit that they don't have all the a- answers. They're held to an impossible standard. They, they, they cannot possibly live up to the standard of infallibility that is, is de facto set for them. And until they can acknowledge the failures of the past, they can't acknowledge that they can be wrong, and they can't listen to people. I, there are so many topics that that they really need to listen to the membership and figure out what's going on in people's lives whether it's whether it's lgbt people who have no place no healthy psychologically healthy place in the church whether it's women who feel marginalized who need to have a voice in the church people of color who who have who who we've we've kind of in we've taken some steps to renounce racism now but we haven't done what we need to do to root it out. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly and if anything this I think this research, I think this it's sort of ironic to me that the thing that has brought so much heartache and oppression is something that could liberate everyone if they could understand polygamy, if they could understand what it has done to the church. It's sort of a liberation to set you free from it all again in in sort of this weird way. So yeah. Nadine, what are you working on right now? 
you mean as far as polygamy is concerned? <laughs> yeah. Or, or do you have any things? projects you want to promote as well? Uh, I really can't think of any. Um, I, I mean, not, not that have to do with polygamy. I, I think that people need to be aware of the problems that, that relate to, to those who are either leave voluntarily or forced out of their communities. Um, holding out help and, and these other groups are, um, they they tend to come out of Christian background, and they're really helping people. They're providing sometimes temporary housing for people as they come out. And I, if if people want to do something to help those who are sort of refugees from from polygamy, especially from the FLDS, which has become so dysfunctional and had their families ripped apart the way they have, um, I I would recommend like donating money to holding out help and uh, maybe even be a safe house for somebody who's transitioning out while they're trying to get on their feet. The, those those groups always need more people who are willing to help. And I will link to them on this podcast episode. That would be really good. Um, Doris Hansen on the uh, Shield and Refuge Ministry, she's, she's raising money for uh, to build a house to get property and build a house called um, a home for Hagar, and uh, she wants to to make a place a safe place for for women who are leaving and who need a a, a place to be while they're while they're getting out. Um, I think Sound Choices Coalition has also been working on trying to to have a house where where people can go and be safe. And they need web design help if anyone wants to volunteer for that. That's good to know, too. Well, Nadine, thanks so much for coming on. Like I said, I really admire you for so many reasons, not just this, but this has definitely made me appreciate you even more as I've delved into this research. So thanks again for coming on, and I promise not to lose your audio this time. I'm going to back it up okay. twice. <laughs> Thank you, Lindsay. I've loved your series. You've done a really great job on it. and. Uh... So I'm 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 honored to be to be a guest on your show. Can people contact you if they have any questions or want to talk more? Sure, I'm on Facebook. Okay, <laughs> sounds good. Well, thanks again, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast. Here, polygamy. 